0: Hello and welcome. You are tuned in to the Final Draft podcast and this is our summer sessions. A chance to kick back over the summer and rediscover some incredible conversations. We are revisiting the Australian Classics Book Club and today in the book club, we're going to be looking at Krina Rowan's The Delinquents. I think for many people, uh, particularly of a certain age, you're probably going to know this story better as the the film that starred Kylie Minogue back before she was, you know, Kylie, but this is an incredible book about coming of age in Brisbane in the middle of the last century, and it is well worth a look. Now, final draft broadcasts from 2SER, and 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people. I record on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. At the beginning of the show, I'd like to acknowledge that we are on First Nations land. I want to pay my respect to the traditional owners of those lands and acknowledge their ongoing connection to their lands acknowledging that it is unceded land that it is stolen land. Now the uh, the summer sessions, the Australian Classics Book Club. It's a panel discussion. It is a chance to hear a multitude of ideas discussing this book in its context, its ramifications through the to- through the years, and maybe how we find it today. So I'm really excited. Stay with us all summer for incredible Australian classics. My name's Andrew Popel, here on the Australian Classics Book Club, and the Delinquents by Karina Ryan. It's coming up after this short break. Mm-hmm. If you are looking at the calendar, you will realise it is the time of the month when we discuss an Australian classic in the aptly named Australian Classics Book Club. Now, every month I am joined by David Winter. He is a senior editor at Text Publishing, whose range of Australian classics really allow us to delve into this literary tradition. Also joining us in the discussion today is Nick Earls. Nick has published widely for children, adults and everyone with eyes to read. He's won the Betty Trask Award and the Children's Book Council of Australia Award. More recently, his Wisdom Tree novellas have won the Independent Publisher Book Awards. For the purpose of today's conversation, though, he wrote the introduction to the text classic editions of The Delinquents, which is our book for discussion. I want to say, uh, I want to say welcome, David. Welcome, Nick.
1: Thanks very much, Andrew. Good to be here. Yeah, great to be here, Andrew.
0: I I neglected to mention also, Nick, you are bringing a much-needed Brisbane perspective to the discussion because uh, uh, Karina Rowan's The Delinquents is very much a Brisbane novel. Now, perhaps like me, dear listener, you're thinking, oh, hang on, that was a Kylie Minogue movie. Must be some sort of Bad Boy Neighbours episode. Hopefully, though, you are more aware of the story of Brownie and Lola drawn together in 1950s Queensland in love against the wishes of their family and the morals of their conservative town. They're struggling just to be young in a world that wants them to toe the line and do the right thing. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to say no to uh, sort of a a battler tragic love story. But before we get more into Brownie and Lola, David, can you introduce us to Krina Rowan?
2: Sure. Uh, Well, Krina Rowan is actually the pseudonym of Deirdre Cash, who had a short life about which not a huge amount is really known. She was born in 1924 into a notable Melbourne left-wing Irish Catholic family. Her father was a writer and her mother a singer. Cash spent uh, her childhood shuttling between the care of family members, She uh, lived for a while on a farm in South Australia with her grandmother and she was a boarder in a convent outside Melbourne. And during that latter time, uh, Alan Marshall, who wrote um, I Can Jump Puddles, encouraged her to write. He was a kind of mentor to the young Deirdre Cash. After she finished school, she lived with her mother in Melbourne and then she married and had a son. That marriage failed and Cash supported herself by singing and dancing in Melbourne clubs. In the mid-50s, she married her great love... Uh, Otto Olsen, who was a seaman, and they had a daughter together. Cash was hospitalised for about four months in Perth uh, with p- uh, suspected tuberculosis, and that was the time when she wrote The Delinquent, so it, it emerged quite quickly. It was rejected by uh, a few Australian publishers, but there was a very good house in London called Victor Gollancz, and they published the book in 1962. Uh, by this stage, uh, Cash was in her late 30s and her health was failing badly. But uh, the year after, she had uh, her second novel published, which is called Down by the Dockside. That's out of print at the moment. And there are rumours about a third novel, the manuscript of a third novel, uh, called House with Yellow Door, but it's never been found. She returned to Melbourne and uh, died of cancer aged 38, so it's a battle, it's a, a story, really, her own life. Um, thinking about uh, the delinquents, it's, to me, really a uh, much less ideological ...novel than many others of its time, such as Bobbin' Up by Dorothy Hewitt... ...or The Die House by Mina Calthorpe. It's probably closer in spirit to William Dick's A Bunch of Ratbags... ...which is about a young um, young gang, gangs in Footscray, the uh, western Melbourne suburb. It's candour about sex and its account of rebellious youth... ...makes it a forerunner to uh, Boydock Slade's death in Brunswick... ...which of course we've talked about in the Classics Book Club... ...and also Andrew McGann's Praise, uh, a great Brisbane novel... I'm not sure how much time Cash spent in Brisbane in her life. I don't think it could have been much. She seems to have tracked all over the country, but never for very long. But she certainly left behind uh, a brilliant depiction of Brisbane. The sad re- reality of the delinquency is, though, that uh, even though it's a great cult novel, I, I don't think that it would really have uh, survived uh, if it hadn't been for that Kylie Minogue movie in 1989. So uh, we are lucky that it's, it's stuck around.
0: Thank you so much. I think, David, also in your introduction, you've shown us why looking at these books and maybe tuning into the Australian Classics Book Club can be so important for getting a sense of Australia because so many of those books you mentioned we have discussed and really help us situate ourselves in, I mean, a time that none of us really had the, that first-hand perspective. But, Nick, I, I introduced that you will bring a much-needed Brisbane perspective here, and in your introduction you described the, the delinquents as a landmark piece of Brisbane fiction and of life in the city in the mid-20th century. Can you explore that a little bit, though, for me, please? Because, I mean, it's one thing to hear about conservative uh, conservatism and police corruption that I think a lot of people think of when they think of maybe the Sir Joe era of, of Queensland, but it's quite another to have been there for parts of it.
1: Yes, so in the groundwork for the, the Joe era was done before Joe's time, uh, in the time of the delinquents very much, uh, the role the police played. And it's very interesting to see them and the power that they have uh, in the book. And in terms of where it fits in, in Brisbane writing, what we saw sometime after that was in the nineteen early 1990s. Publishers generally seem to become much more open to publishing works that had originated somewhere outside Sydney and Melbourne. So from the early 1990s on, from Andrew McGahn's praise and others, we suddenly got lots of books set in Brisbane and it's become a very normal thing. But the Brisbane, in the Brisbane in which I grew up, it wasn't a normal thing. Uh, You didn't bump into writers writers weren't here publishing books, and if you paid attention what you saw was Brisbane as a city that writers left and then wrote about once they'd left and they tended not to come back at least not in any visible way and uh, when I was at school in the 1970s David Malouf published Jono and uh, That got a bit of attention here, but that was a real rarity and it was studied in the English class next to mine at school with the kind of cool young English teacher who went on to lead the Democrats in the Senate. Uh, but I never studied it in my English class. And it's the kind of one significant Brisbane novel that I can think of that parallels the period of the delinquents that kind of post-war era in Brisbane And as someone who has connected who connected with the place for the first time in the 1970s and has lived here since then and watched the place evolve quite dramatically over that time It's really valuable to have a book like this that Gives insights into the lives that people led in the decades before I was here and as you've said there's a romance in there there's a story about a relationship that operates on one level of this book but some of the really striking stuff in the book the memorable stuff the really valuable stuff is what it said about the lives that people led uh, in Australia in the mid-20th century the lives of people who were disenfranchised and how they dealt with things and how the system treated them and as I read this book I know those neighbourhoods, they still exist. Many of those houses still exist, but I know the lives that those houses have had in the 80s and 90s and this century, and I think it's fascinating to get a glimpse of some of the lives that might have been conducted in those wooden houses in Spring Hill and West End uh, in the mid-20th century in a society that operated according to a very different set of rules and expectations.
2: Nick, Nick. I, oh, sorry.
0: sorry, you go, Andrew. I was just going to say, Nick, you you just beautifully described the entire first season of the Australian Classics Book Club, where we spent a lot of time <laughs> uh, in 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 a west of Sydney, where I live now. And uh, and I, I str- one of the things that I did struggle was trying to get my head around the, the few times because I haven't spent a lot of time in Brisbane, mm. placing all of these places. So it must it must be wonderful to have that experience.
1: Uh, it is. It's great to have it because. It's not the Brisbane of now, but it gives me a sense of where the Brisbane of now came from. There are enough things that still exist, enough enough details of the suburbs and the landscape that I can place the specifics of the delinquents in that landscape, even though it's a very different place, both in terms of... Size and life and culture uh, than it was at the time, there are enough things there that I recognize that let me pin it down so that when um, when the characters are standing on queen street and and you know she 's waiting to be picked up by the black car that takes her off for a, a pregnancy termination. Many of those buildings are still there, so I know that place, but, the, I, but that scene is quite alien to me and that's one of the things that makes it fascinating, that that's part of the story of this place and that's why I'm very glad that we actually get to see that and that the story isn't just news reports and it's not just when buildings were built, something like this gives us an insight into lives that were led.
2: Um, Nick, I wanted to ask you. You refer to the Saints in your introduction, the band, the Saints, and mm. the famous photo. Um, I'm stranded, the single and album, uh, with the the famous photo of the um, uh, the fireplace uh, and the graffiti daubed around it. The band standing in front. Are we in the delinquents uh, late in the book where there is um, uh, a, where Lola and Brownie? Uh, living in a derelict house and kind of doing it up and they're in in a brisbane in a West Brisbane are we in the same kind of space as the um as that famous saints room or that you know it was another abandoned house that was sort of yes, taken over?
1: Yes, we are. Um there are there are a couple of different places that they spend time in in Brisbane. I think one's at West End, mm-hmm. so that's a couple of kilometers away. But there's certainly one time there's there's a time in the book uh when they're at Spring Hill mm-hmm. and working out, reading about where they were at Spring Hill, I'd say they're about a five minute walk from mm-hmm. the from the the place where the Saints daubed, I'm stranded on the wall. Uh, So that was a house on Gregory Terrace in Spring Hill that was abandoned at the time. I think it was a Victorian property and had probably been uh, quite a luxurious place in Victorian times. And so that's where the Saints ended up. But that area, when the Saints went there in the 70s, was still... Uh, in in its state of disadvantage that it was post-war in the delinquents. It's a a different area now. Like many inner suburbs, it's undergone quite a bit of gentrification, but quite a lot of those old houses are still there. Many of them have been renovated. Some of them haven't. But when I was reading that bit with them in the house at Spring Hill, I got a clear sense of where it was. And so that's what took me to the saints, thinking, thinking, Twenty years after this, uh, in the same neighbourhood, a five-minute walk from this scene in the delinquents, you have another really important moment in the culture of the place happening in a in a rundown building that at the time no one would have given a second thought to. Yeah. And so
2: really the story of Brisbane is being sort of told in uh, like these layers of history through the second half of the 20th century. Are being, it's told um, probably more famously through the Saints and the go-betweens and so on, and the, those sites that have been really enshrined in their songs and in um, writing about those bands. But it's also already there in, in a book like The Delinquents.
1: Um, that's right. And I think what we've got is we, we actually have a kind of a paucity of material dealing with that time and making those connections. And that's why a work like this, even if it's relatively low profile, is a very valuable work to have. Uh, and if you move forward from then, you don't have many books in, set in Brisbane in the 70s and into the early 80s. I'm not saying there are none. You do have some. Um, you have Jared Lee's Pieces for a Glass Piano, I think, and, and some others, but really not very many. And it's only when we get to uh, the writing of the 90s, which, which uses the 80s and then the 90s, that we actually start to see a lot of work there. So I think it's very valuable to have some of the earlier pieces that lead us to the the last 30 years or so which have been much better represented
0: wow i love that album. thank you i think we've soundtracked today's episode (laughs) just there i um, i I discovered the saints when i became a big ed cooper fan like in my mid-teens and i guess for a while that probably was brisbane before i ever visited brisbane it was like Mm. the saints um i wanted to I wanted to talk about a word that you use in your introduction, Nick, and we've already mentioned I think at least once or twice in here, and that's that's this idea of battlers and we we lionize battlers in Australia, you know the politicians think that world is word is gold if they mention it in terms yeah. of supporting the battlers, but there's something in the story of Lola and Brownie that shows us that this idea of being a battler is only going to be tolerated. And the struggle is only permissible on certain terms, and that's within these very sort of narrow ideas of morality. Um, I re- and that really came through for me because I don't know. There's some, the, uh, Lola and Brownie's story seemed very sympathetic to me, and it it, it only it's only through thinking about that, a time and a place that I don't have that I don't have that experience of that I can understand that they were being treated the way that they were.
1: Yes, it's very interesting to, to see that. And I think the thing about battlers, um, the word has kind of drifted away from its, uh, from its origins, really, because of how much it's been used by politicians over the last couple of decades. But um, at the heart of the, of the word battler is the battle uh, that they have to deal with. So, and in the mid-20th century in Brisbane, you've got this group of people who are disenfranchised and disempowered but I just try to get by. I try to earn the money uh, to feed themselves and to pay their rent and to handle the necessities of life but in a society that seems to treat them quite harshly and not make it easy for them at all and keep imposing rules that now look very arbitrary and that derail their lives and that stand in the way of any attempts to actually lead a, 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 a happy and contented life. And I think what we see is we see them sometimes dreaming of a life that seems uh, like a conservative ideal, but I don't think anyone had given them other dreams. Uh, and at the same time, we see Lola seeing some of that in, uh, there's a scene where she has afternoon tea, I think, uh, with the, the the woman she's sort of been assigned to. And uh, uh, and and a success story turns up, and the success story's dreams just seem so banal. And I think the word banal is actually even used uh, in that in that section. But but there don't seem to be any other dreams around. And uh, it was really interesting for me to see that time and to see the forces at work on the lives of people in disadvantaged situations. As someone who arrived in Brisbane in the nineteen seventies, and then got to see the politics of the time uh, and the clashes between people who wanted change uh, and the authorities under Joe Bielke-Peterson and then to see that government ultimately fall in 1989 and the chance for something very different to come along. But as you've said, uh, what we're seeing here is not delivered principally from the point of view of the politics. It's not an aerial view of what's going on. What I think is great about this is, All the politics is there and its implications are all there. Uh, But what we're watching is a story of two people's lives and how uh, the politics intersected with that and dominated with that and how it was transacted uh, at a street level by the police and by the other authorities.
0: The interesting thing about that scene you just mentioned, uh, Nick, and, and this is at the risk of alienating friends and family. I... I hear in that scene of the success story, who was only ever referred to as the success story in the yeah. scene, her, she's talking about her, I think, her new kitchen and the oven, and mm-hmm. it's kind of um, a 60 years ago version of many of the home renovation doing yes. up um stories that are that are a staple <laughs> yeah. of Australian barbecues today. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's right. Um, it really, it really is. So there's this kind of prepackaged dream that you're uh supposed to aspire to and she's aspiring to it. And uh, the details might have changed, but there's still that packaging that goes on with it, yeah.
0: And we probably still also have the same the same sanctions against transgressing. I mean, there's the hypocrisy of, of morality in the book. It's really severely evoked in this juxtaposition between Brownie and Lola's behaviour and the treatment they receive for it. So I mean on the surface they're just they're falling in love and they have sex and it they are very young when it happens but if you if you juxtapose that with the the sort of the backstreet abortion and the the violence that's implied in that even though it's a very sanitized process and scene or even just the the idea that walking together unmarried could see them you know taken by the police and beaten and done for vacancy, yeah. the the two the this just the gap between the the morality and its realisation was was so huge for me.
1: Yes, me too. That was really quite stark. Uh, And there's one time when they're done for underage drinking and they're dragged apart and they're not allowed to see each other for a year and there are serious consequences for both of them. Um, And those were kind of horrifying insights into uh, into the life, but that 's what makes it for me a really powerful story and it 's those details that um, that make it really valuable to have it and that it's and, and that tell me there 's so much more to it than just uh, a kind of story of frequently thwarted love mm.
2: it's sort of a um, the, the state as represented by um uh, foster families and, and mainly the police are sort of operating uh, from a control perspective, but there's no care or support. So, yeah. um, you know, and the the families of Lola and Brownie are almost the same as well. They, they want to control their children, but they don't really want to look after them.
0: I was wondering a little bit, um, I think, David, it was you mentioned that the book isn't overtly political, but I was really curious, uh, particularly about the way things are presented by and, and implied, there's a great uh, great quote that you also mentioned in your introduction, Nick, or if you ask me, all Brisbane's full of coppers and all of them mm. are bastards. And Lola's mm. kind of summing up here the, the struggle of all the young characters that they have in expressing themselves and simply just ha- being in a world where they, they have to, this surprised me, they have to walk around with their bank book at the ready to show that they have money so they're not done for yeah, vagrancy. No. I, I wondered if there was any sense that, in writing this, Karina Rowan was sort of presenting a counterpoint to this oppressive force, a way to co- expose this hypocrisy through a medium that, in the romance, might mm. seem harmless on casual observation.
2: Yeah, it's a pretty stealthy book in that way, I think, because mm. uh, it, it, you can just read it as a, a, rebellious, a, sto- a story of rebellious teen love. And it... Functions perfectly at that level as a sort of really high quality, slightly pulpy book. But you know, underneath all of that is just it's just so cutting and careful. And I think that's probably what I meant earlier by saying that it's not um, overtly ideological. I think it's got a mission, um, but it's certainly not didactic.
0: And it's a very clever book in that way. Was mm. was the time so oppressive? I wonder that if it had been overtly political, that would have seen some some form of sanction against it.
2: Well Nick I'd be interested to know what you think from a Brisbane perspective of that, about that but what I would say is that if that was her if that was Greena Rowan's intent it's uh, a funny way to do it because I would have thought that the book was risky um, from a censorship perspective because of the candour about sex and uh, it be, you know that was still a period what are we talking about early 60s uh, we're still very much in the time of court cases and um, obscenity trials and so on. Lady Ch- Chatterley's Lover. So, if she was sort of doing a stealth move with the, uh, in a political sense, uh, you'd think she might be more careful in the, uh, on, on the romance side. But she she really goes for it. I mean, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty frank book for its time.
1: Yeah, it is. It, it's bold in a number of respects, as, you, as you've said. And this was a time when Queensland was certainly not prepared to rely on the national censorship process. Uh, the national censorship process happened, but Queensland had censors of its own. So uh, I'm not aware of this book being banned, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if discussions might have been had about that because Queensland uh, set the, set a higher bar for banning books uh, than than was nationally the case as far as i'm aware for quite a while and certainly still in the 60s and i wonder if uh, Korean rowan had Lived a lot longer and written more books and this book had really embedded itself into the consciousness in the 60s if there might have been more issues uh, About it and i i wonder if we've been if it's been deprived of some of that uh, because she lived for so little time after after publishing it, and it lost some of its momentum.
0: I want to I want to continue with this idea of prevailing attitudes of conservatism and the way Australia just loves to talk about uh, taboo and saucy topics. Because and bring us to the film because I I was actually watching some clips of the film version before we got on air and and the film was released in 1989. It was probably most noted at the time for being Kylie Minogue's big screen debut. Um, and I just I just delved languidly through a few previews and, and then some interviews and it really struck me to hear both the director and also Kylie Minogue discussing the role of sex scenes in the film. And so I'm assuming this was either 89 or maybe 90 and there was definitely in the way they spoke this air of prudish reticence to discuss the topic. They kept Mm apologising for the fact that it was there. They were Mm -hmm. downplaying the role so much more than what we hear in Rowan's narrative.
1: That's really interesting, and I wonder if part of that might have been to do with Kylie Minogue as a 20-year-old when shooting it, who turned 21 during the shoot, making the transition from being... The the then archetypal girl next door uh, in Neighbors to being a somewhat more adult, um, ent- public entity who then explored different ways of approaching her early adulthood in the early nineties uh, with a relationship with Michael, Michael Hutchins and various other things, um, and I and, and it was nineteen so I remember it being shot in may 1989 so the national party was still the government in power in queensland for another six months uh, at that stage though so they were very much on the skids then and uh, it was a very interesting time in queensland then as we knew that change was the momentum for change was really building and change was by then inevitable the fitzgerald inquiry had been going for a couple of years and we were learning all kinds of things uh, about the police that went back to the 1960s and the 1970s and fit very much with a picture of the police that karina rowan paints uh, in the delinquents um, but at that time kylie minogue was dealing with some interesting things because she'd been you imagine a year and a half before then when she was just starting out on Neighbours, uh, before she actually released uh, Locomotion and uh, she was so she was a rising actor and a singer but then suddenly she became famous. 1988 was the year when that really happened and she went from being just another young person on TV to someone who made 13 million dollars in a year uh, which even now is of course a lot of money but in 1988 it just was an insane amount of money. And so there she was turning up to film the delinquents, suddenly having become so famous that she actually couldn't leave the hotel. And I can remember a time when she wanted to buy a pair of jeans And she couldn't go to a shop because if she tried to leave the hotel to go to a shop She would be mobbed by fans and that's a really weird experience when you're 20 turning 21 And it's happened to you in a big rush So the jeans had to be brought to her and she tried them on in her her hotel room And that's when she chose the ones that she wanted So she was going through a kind of interesting time in her life at that stage and I can remember Uh, As part of that, I was talking to one of the producers of the film, and I did say to him, why are you shooting this film in Brisbane? What made you shoot it here? Because historically, very few films have been shot in Brisbane. And that's when he just looked at me, gave me this look that suggested that question had been asked of him far too many times already. Uh, And he said, because a lot of the book is set here. And I didn't know that. And I thought, how did that happen? How is there this book that was set here that I didn't know about? So that was the beginning of me actually learning about the book and the story and what it was what it was all about, but um, It's it really shouldn't take the movie being shot somewhere for an aspiring writer to ask the question that, that Reveals to them that the book is actually set in their hometown uh, And I I think it's really unfortunate that probably because of the early death of Karina Rowan uh, It lost prominence relatively quickly in the 1960s and it took the film well, first it took David Bowie reading it and saying it would great, make a great film, and then it took the film, uh, and then it took this new edition to actually keep it afloat and make it part of the conversation. And while it might never be a particularly famous book, I don't think we're going to lose it from the conversation now. Uh, I think it's bedded down as part of this city's story, and I think that's a really good thing.
0: In terms of in terms of depiction, Nick, it sounds like I mean the film gets setting right just being in brisbane um but one thing that i got from from watching some of these clips and interviews was there was controversy at the time in casting charlie schlatter as brownie because he was an american and it yeah. was felt that it should have been an in an been, it should have been an australian was there ever any sense that kylie minogue was a controversial choice because from the very beginning i thought how does kylie minogue play this character she she doesn't look like this character it's mm-hmm. lola's lola's um eurasian in her background and i'm forgetting yeah. exactly um her dad's her dad's background who he's he never appears in the book but i i i've watched a few clips and i think kylie minogue actually does a really good job of it but i could not see her at all reading the book
1: no and i think uh th- so there are a couple of a couple of aspects to this. Uh, One is that at the time that the film was shot, the book had not been widely read by by people living in Brisbane at that time. Certainly, obviously, some people had read it uh, and knew about it and could contest those sorts of things. But it's not as though this was a book that had sold 100,000 copies in Brisbane in the preceding few years and there was all kinds of pressure. This wasn't like Casting Renee Zellweger for Bridget Jones's Diary. Uh, And there's another person who did a very good job uh, because she was embedded in Pan Macmillan in London for a month undercover being uh, a publicist assistant. And I actually worked with her during that time and totally fell for it. Uh, But she was getting ready to play that role. But there was a lot of flack for that because of so many people having read the book and having a clear version of the character in their heads. Whereas... What I recall from Brisbane at the time was that this was the time when lots of us were discovering that this book was around and had and was a Brisbane story, but it didn't mean we were able to get copies of it and read it. But I think people were kind of excited that this story that was set in Brisbane was being turned into a film set in Brisbane and at that time Kylie Minogue wasn't the Kylie Minogue of now with a massive decades-long music career behind her. She was a young actor on Neighbours, who had had a couple of singles out and become famous. So she was a bit of a pop star and neighbors is neighbors, um, but people weren't noticing that she, in my experience, people weren't noticing that she had very little in common with Lola and was in some senses maybe a very unusual choice. One other thing that affected that was that the issue of her casting. Which was seen to give some star power, uh, though people weren't sure that she uh, that she had the acting gravitas to bring to the role. Though I, I think she, from what i from the bits I've seen, uh, she seemed, as you said, she seemed to handle it well. Um, the big issue with casting was Charlie Schlatter uh, as Brownie, and I understand that Ben Mendelssohn was originally in the frame for that, and I think he would have been great at he it. He would have been, uh, yeah. Wouldn't he have been a good choice? Yep, perfect. This, perfect. This was an attempt to, uh, to give the film a real shot in the American market. So they thought, we'll cast uh, a rising American star who who will, get, who will become even more famous while we're shooting the movie so that by the time it's made, uh, we'll get an awesome American distribution deal and everything will be great. And of course, that didn't happen because he, he didn't become much more famous he wasn't, in the end, a, a box office asset in America, so they didn't get the distribution deal and it ended up looking like a rather odd choice. I mean, the book, the, the film grossed $3 million in Australia, which for an Australian film is not bad at all, uh, but I think that casting cast a bit of a shadow over it and I, I wish we'd seen it with Ben Mendelssohn in it.
0: And look at Ben Mendelsohn now. He's everyone's favourite science fiction villain. Like he is, I mean, it doesn't make you think of Brownie, but he is the quintessential (laughs) bad guy now and he's huge.
1: Um, He is huge and he's done so many things. And he's even gone to America and played Americans. So, you know, Ben Mendelsohn can do that too. But the reverse of that, Charlie Schlatter as a young guy coming here uh, and doing that as Brownie, didn't seem to be received as well.
0: One thing that in in the clips that I saw I thought, was really good and it really got me thinking about the novel was the way Kylie Minogue realized Lola's voice because seeing it on the screen with with kind of the music and the costume I realized this really is a, a rock and roll novel but Lola's voice when I read the book is so matter-of-fact it's very world-weary almost all of that uh, sort of extraneous detail the rock and roll is stripped away and I'm very focused on I was very focused on this Sort of waif, waifish, battler, young woman, just trying to make it. It, it felt at times like all the colour had been drained. Such was her life.
1: Mm. Um, yes, I think that's right, and I think that uh, I think in the novel we we get a very effective sense of what she's dealing with uh, with in in the way that she is kind of matter of fact and stripped back and she goes through some some quite awful things in a way that clearly affects her to some extent but she delivers them in a way that puts them in the context of the time and uh and 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 and, and gave me the sense that there were that this was this was how many people's lives were being led at the time and uh that uh, and that kind of adds to the horror. That this is not a unique case. That this is that here is someone who is, in a sense, living a life that she expects to lead with these oppressive forces upon her.
2: Nick, um, a month ago, Andrew and I uh, were talking with Ben Law about Corey Taylor's "Me and Mr. Booker." Uh, it'd be so great to be able to ask Corey uh, if she was still alive, whether she had read the Delinquents. And, you know, because I can see a little, there's just a little bit of crossover with, with the two novels.
1: Yeah, and I, I think Corey was a very insightful writer and uh, and creator of characters. And, uh, yeah, I agree. It will be interesting to see what she would see in this book and what she would take from it. And uh, I can see why you would kind of draw those connections.
0: Yeah, thank you for pointing that out, David. I hadn't until you mentioned it, but now I can completely see. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great observation. Now I've, whenever I have five seconds spare, I'll have to reread them both, sort of a bit <laughs> bit more closely, more closely <laughs> than a month apart. Uh, <laughs> how much am I reading? How How do we feel about the conversation? Is there anything we we haven't gotten to? Because that's we've had a really great chat. That's I've really enjoyed this. Thank you both of you. Yeah, it's been really really good. No, I thank mean, you. Enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been
1: really good to be part of it. Yeah.
0: Well, um, what I may do is uh, I'm just going to back-announce both of you and and close us out.
1: Great. Cool.
0: This is the Australian Classics Book Club. You're on Final Draft on 2SCI 107.3. Joining me today was David Winter. He's a senior editor at Text Publishing. was also speaking with author Nick Earls. He wrote the introduction to Krena Rowan's The Delinquents. It was the subject of today's book club. You can listen back online. You can catch more Final Draft every week, and you can also catch us on the podcast. So, David, thank you. Nick, thank you so much for joining me for the discussion.
1: Thanks Thanks, very much, Andrew. Great to talk to you both. Yeah, cheers.
0: Thank you for joining us here on the Final Draft podcast. Today, we were, this is our summer sessions. We were in the Australian Classics Book Club. We were discussing Karina Rowan's The Delinquents. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You'll find Final Draft on socials. You can email us. Just email finaldraft2scr.com. Love to hear it. Love to know what you're reading. Also, love to just feel like you're all kicking back with a book right now. My name's Andrew Popel. I'm going to be back all summer with incredible panel discussions from the Australian Classics Book Club. Stay relaxed. Happy reading. Bye for now.